Welcome to Making History, the podcast chronicling one grad student's attempt to study for his comprehensive exams. And so I'm sitting here at my kitchen table and I'm looking around me and I see a ton of stuff. I see books, I see a wine glass, I see some bananas, a cell phone. And one of the interesting things about all this stuff is that it comes from a ton of different places. Uh, And I was just about to list them, but I don't know where they come from, which is the other interesting thing about it. And so today we're going to be looking at this phenomenon of how the modern world of stuff came to be. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at four things and talking about the global histories in them. One of the the, the ways that at dinner parties I talk about this is my two favorite drinks, IPAs and gin and tonics. Both of them are developments of British colonialism in India. The IPA, the India Pale Ale, was developed as a way of shipping beer from Britain to India. It had pale malt, which kept better in the long journey. It had more hops, and everybody knew that hops was a preservative agent. And in addition to that extra hops, it had extra hops in the the, the cask of beer themselves, making it super preserved and also super bitter, that delicious, delicious taste that hipsters like me so enjoy. Um, It quickly spread from just being something that British officers drank in India to being a mark of excitement and adventure. So IPA was for for officers, but the second thing is gin and tonic, which is for the rank and file. Think of the three ingredients of a good gin and tonic. First you have the gin, then you have the tonic, then you have the lime. These were the rations of a person in the British Navy. You had gin to keep the troops happy, you had tonic to stave off malaria because tonic has quinine, which is a medicine that helps with malaria, and you have lime to prevent the scurvy. So there, in the histories of my two favorite drinks, are the histories a little bit of the people who pushed the British Empire. The first history I'd like to talk about is sugar. And we're going to be talking about sugar more in detail later because it's incredibly important. But today we're just going to be talking about the environmental impact of sugar that sugar had on the plantations that grew it. So in the 18th century, sugar became cheap and Europeans from Britain to France to Germany got a taste for sweet, sweet things. They were putting sugar in everything from ornamental swans that would sit at the centerpiece of dinner tables to their coffee and their tea. But sugar was cheap because sugar was grown in plantations and plantations were cheap because they were staffed by slaves. How did this happen? Well, the first question is, why did sugar plantations have to move overseas? Why couldn't sugar be grown in Europe like wheat was? Well, sugar was tree hungry. To grow sugar, you needed a lot of wood. And you needed a lot of wood because sugar rots really quickly. And so on a sugar plantation, you need to boil it down and refine it straight away if you want to turn it into a commodity. And boiling it requires wood which requires trees. And in the places where you could grow sugar in Europe, the trees were all gone. So European sugar plantation owners had to shift their eyes to other places. One of these places was Madeira, the small Atlantic island where overseas sugar plantations first started. Madeira was called the Island of Wood. And in 1450, sugar plantations were first put there. Production peaked in 1510. 
by 1530, production declined to 90% of the rates that it was at 1510. And by 1560, there was no more sugar plantation in Madeira because they completely ripped out all of the trees and the island shifted to producing wine. Similarly, in 20 years from the start of sugar plantations in Barbados, the island was stripped of most of its trees. So in all of these places where sugar plantations were taken, it was in search of forests that could be exploited to generate the heat necessary to boil the sugar that was needed to turn sugarcane into a commodity. Sugar also needed a ton of water, which pushed people in sugar-producing areas to build canals. The other thing that sugar needed was labor. It was really, really hard to work in the sugarcane fields, and it was even harder to boil down the sugarcane into sugar to ship off to Europe. And what did the Europeans do? They used slaves. So this combination of standing water and deforestation led to something terrible. Because do you know what else really, really likes the combination of standing water and lots of people? mosquitoes, mankind's greatest enemy. There's a lot of mosquitoes that carry a ton of really, really nasty diseases that can really rip through a population. And rip through the population it did in every place where sugar plantations were settled. In fact, one of the great environmental histories of the sugarcane industry is called the Mosquito Coast, because everywhere where sugar was, there was the mosquito. Yellow fever, for instance, followed the canals which were built to water the sugar plantations. And the first recorded yellow fever epidemics were not in West Africa, where the disease is endemic, but rather in the North American canals that were being built for the sugar industry. Europeans' taste for a sweet, delicious beverage led to not only slavery, but the massive expansion of malaria and yellow fever in the Americas. Shifting gears a little bit, we're going to talk about another food. Now, when we think about global staples, when we think about the food that people eat to keep, you know, body and mind together, we think of big things like corn, potatoes, rice. But one of the biggest staple crops is something that probably doesn't come to mind very often for my listeners. It's called tapioca. I certainly was reading about it today, and I had not given it thought since the elementary school days of tapioca pudding. Now, tapioca goes by a bunch of different names. It can be called manioc, yucca, and cassava, but we're going to just be calling it tapioca today for simplicity's sake. Tapioca is one of the world's most important staple crops. After rice, corn, wheat, and potatoes, it is the most important staple crop in the world. It is the chief food for over half a billion people today, most of them in Africa. And it's, it's great. It's, it's fantastic food. Um, it thrives in poor soil. It requires little maintenance. It has high yields. It's really easy to propagate. And you don't really need to store it. You can just leave it in the ground until you're ready to eat it. Um, it's also tasteless, so it can be combined with whatever sauce you want to use with it. Um, the only problem with it is that it's poisonous. Um, and to actually eat it, you have to boil it for hours, pound it, leach it, drain it, and do this incredibly labor-intensive process. But so how did tapioca, this Amazonian uh, tuber, get to be on the plates of half a billion people around the world? Well, the answer actually comes from sugar and slavery. Tapioca was native to Brazil. 
where it was the staple of the Tupi people. Now, when the Portuguese landed in Brazil and started to set up colonies there, they found it really, really useful for the same reasons the Tupi people found it useful. It was delicious, it was healthy, and it was easy to grow. Well, the Portuguese wanted to set up their own sugar plantations, and Brazil had a ton of wood, which, as I've just told you guys, is the limiting factor in sugar production. But the Brazilians also needed labor, and the Brazilians got that labor from Africa. On the Brazilian slave ships that would go from uh, the coast of Brazil over to the coast of West Africa, along with all the weapons and trading goods and all the other things, they would bring tapioca. Because on the coast of West Africa, when the Portuguese were receiving the tired and broken Africans who would soon become their slaves, they needed to keep them alive. And they would feed them with the nutritious, rich, and easy-to-eat meal of tapioca starch. Tapioca spread with Portuguese slavery. Tapioca also spread to Asia, where it was grown as a cash crop and turned into tapioca flour, and then became itself a global commodity. Guess where it ended up? Well, it ended up on the plates of Victorian children, who ate it in guises like milk pudding and the familiar tapioca. It was great because, as we learned a couple days ago, tapioca was just the kind of bland, carby rich thing that Victorian parents thought that children needed to curb their inner appetites and to make them stop masturbating. Our third global commodity is a lot less familiar than sugar and tapioca. It's the ostrich feather. And the high tide of the ostrich feather trade did not last very long. I mean, people have been using ostrich feathers for thousands of years. They're these big, beautiful plumes that move when you shake them. Um, have you ever, if you've ever seen a, a feather boa, they're often made out of ostrich feathers. And just get the sense of them as like one, two, three, four foot long, gigantic, beautiful plumes. And you can see why people traded them for so long. But between about 1880 and 1914, ostrich feathers were so in demand that they were literally worth their weight in diamonds. They were used to adorn women's big hats, and I mean, they looked fabulous. Uh, just imagine those feather boas again. Or actually check out the website, uh, and I have a picture up of a very, very elegant Victorian lady wearing the most awesome ostrich plume adorned hat. So ostrich feathers came from ostriches, which were native to Africa, and they were farmed in Sudan and South Africa. Um, from there, they were shipped off to London, where they were graded and manufactured and put into boxes and sold all across the world, mainly by a network of Jewish merchants. Um, and it was incredibly profitable, and ostriches became a really, really important agricultural good. In South Africa in 1913, at the height of the ostrich boom, there was 776,000 ostriches being raised. It was so important that in 1910, the British government organized this poaching mission to Sudan to smuggle out a bunch of the superior ostriches that could produce the fantastic Barbary-grade feather so that they could get into South Africa, breed it with the local South African ostriches, and make a race of super ostriches that would capture the ostrich feather market. But the problem was, is that the ostrich feather market no longer existed. In 1914, all of a sudden, women stopped wanting to wear ostrich feathers in their hats. 
One of the reasons is the, the First World War started, and people no longer wanted that showy elegance of the ostrich feather, the imperial overtones of it. They didn't want the, the excitement of, and verve of the ostrich feather. It, it didn't fit with the time. But this sudden change lets ostrich farmers and the ostrich feather merchants and the poor ostriches out on a limb. The once prosperous towns that had fed the ostrich plume trade, um, including Outshorn, which was called at one time the Jerusalem of Africa because it was so, so, so central to uh, uh, the Jewish community of South Africa, it left all of these places destitute. So let's put these four stories into perspective. In each case, the thing is only important because of the cultural value that people give to it. And this cultural value determines how these things are used and by whom. Ostrich plume use is heavily gendered. In 1914, all the consumers were fashionable women who wore ostrich plumes to look glamorous and awesome. And when the glamorous and awesome women no longer wanted ostrich plumes, the ostrich plumes were no longer useful and they were relegated to being used as feather dusters. But a hundred years earlier, ostrich plume consumers were mainly men who looked for the beautiful plumes to or ornament their fantastic regimental military helmets. The other thing to take in mind is that every single stage, this cultural production was never very far away from the environment. Ostrich plumes came from ostriches, which are huge birds that you have to farm. Sugar came from sugar cane, which is a temperamental grass that you have to farm using a bunch of water. Beer is beer and you need, well, there the metaphor kind of breaks down, but you get the point. Finally, we have to notice how uneven this process is. Tiny cultural changes in politically powerful areas like Europe could have massive effects on entire worlds of production and consumption. If all of a sudden, the people in Europe who like your stuff no longer like your stuff, and you're a colonial producer, then you're sunk. Thanks very much to listening to us today. Um, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for giving us our intro music. Um, I also have to thank now Duncan Barton for the wonderful, wonderful image that now adorns our podcast feed. Uh, if you want to get information on where you can find them or information about the books that I've read today, check us out at historian.live. Also, we're now up on iTunes. It really helps if you could rate and review us. And also, if you want to give a link to that iTunes thing on your social media, uh, I'd love uh, to get some more listeners. Thanks very much for coming, and I'll speak to you tomorrow.